Right, welcome to the latest edition of the Visions and Tones podcast and my name is Tony for those who are just listening to the podcast now. Uh, my co-host CJ, he's not with us today, he's in South Africa, he just went for a holiday. We hope that CJ is good wherever he is, um, but uh, I'm not alone, I'm with a guest today, Dr. Prince Atoki, he's originally from Ghana. Um, but he's uh, living and working in Australia. So we're just going to talk about, you know, uh, behaviors of people much more from a psychological perspective as he is a clinical psychologist and also he trained as a behavioral scientist. So, yeah, we're going to just have a good chat and just uh, enjoy. Um, Dr. Atoki, welcome to the Visions and Tones. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, great to be here. And uh, thanks for extending the invitation to me to right. be here with you today. Yeah. It's been it's been hard to get to you, right? Well, <laughs> I remember we had a conversation about this probably sometime last year. Yeah. And yeah, I know as you grow things, a lot of responsibilities. And I know you are a very busy person. So. Yeah. But yeah, it's good we are here today and yeah, it's finally, happening. Yeah, Finally. I was thinking because the, the, the last conversation that we were supposed to have, I think it was more about, can you recall what it was about? But it had to do with religion. Yes, mental health and religion. Mental health and religion. Spirituality and mental health sort of. And, yeah. and, and how, that is, how that can be explained biblically. Because I used to see a lot of your posts yeah. on, your, on your WhatsApp. You put a lot of um, uh, explanation from a biblical mm. context. I yeah. think at some point you were talking about issues of trauma, if I'm not mistaken, or depression. And you sort of speaking about job at some point and i was like yes. oh i've never really thought about how that can be related into mm. um you know bi like mental health into mm. biblical context because mm. we don't really get to see that happening we, we always thought that the bible is more about just spirituality but we forget that the people who are being written who are there on the bible actually human beings who would experience normal right. challenges like yeah. us you know um yeah, what, what do you think? Do you think there really is that concept, and what informs um, people to write in that context where they think they can narrate about people in the Bible's mental health? Hence, there isn't sort of any diagnosis. Isn't isn't that maybe a more of just speculations? Well, I, I don't think it is speculation. So like you said earlier, this um, we're human beings. I'm using we're because they are no more like with us, but this, this we're human beings just like us. And every challenge that we experience are something that they also experienced as well. So I honestly don't think that it, they are speculations. So there are several examples of people in the Bible who um, experience distress of course, during those times, it wasn't like a formal diagnosis. So there, there were not like formalized diagnosis mm -hmm. where you could say this is uh, depression or this is um, anxiety or this is post-traumatic stress disorder and all those other uh, mental health conditions that we know of now. But we can see from the descriptions that were given in the Bible that these are the conditions that they were experiencing. Mm -hmm. So grief is... Um, an aspect of mental health 
And we know um, Jesus Christ himself experienced grief. He cried at a point when his very close friend Lazarus um, died. And um, the prophet Elijah, the popular prophet Elijah, at a point got fed up and he was wishing to die. So that was like a suicidal ideation. And so many other examples of um, Job himself went through a lot. He went through so much and at a point he also wished that he never lived. And so this is an example of suicidal ideation. So even though there were not formal diagnosis, we, we've come to appreciate that they did experience what we do experience um, in contemporary times. And of course, we have gotten names for it. Yeah. Whereas in those times, um, probably the person will, will tell what he or she is experiencing, but there wasn't a formal diagnosis. I don't think there are speculations. There are things that are very real. But yeah. do, do you think that had all these things been formally diagnosed or even documented, um, that would make Christianity much more believable? Because at this moment, it seems as if the borderline between whether we understand something from a uh, spiritual context and from a medical context is actually one of the things that challenge us, isn't it? Where yeah, sure. some doctrines would even say to people, you know, you feel this kind of sickness, go to God. Like mm-hmm. some churches don't believe in, and we're not going to quote any churches mm-hmm. here, but you find they'll encourage the members to say, pray about this, pray mm-hmm. about that. But you find that as a, as a clinician, when you're looking at it, you're like, but this doesn't just need prayers. Yes, mm-hmm. prayer, prayer is good, but you gotta get, you got to dive deep. This is deeper than that. Mm-hmm. So do you think that had this thing been documented, mental health been documented in the Bible, it would make the faith much more easier? Honestly, I think so. Um, yes, like I said earlier, those times they were not formally, maybe not formally recognized or formally documented as we do now. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's possible... Um, they probably had people who were specialized in treating um, people with mental health conditions, but they were not documented in the Bible. And there's also a lot of things that happened, I believe, happened in um, the Bible times that um, were not documented because, of course, we may not be able to carry even the Bible or mm-hmm. we may not be able to read it um, because of the how voluminous or con- uh, how much huge it is going to be. So... But then when you read the Bible, you realize that it still points us to so many things that we should do, particularly with our mental. For example, there are um, situations in the Bible like the Good Samaritan story when he was um, on his way, the, the man who was attacked when he was on his way and he got attacked. We saw the Good Samaritan picked him and took him to an inn, which is more like a hospital in, in our time now. So right. the Bible you know, points to the fact that uh, even though it didn't state specifically that go to a hospital when you are sick, but then he talked about the man who was injured being taken to the inn. And so that again tells us that when you are sick, you need to go to the hospital to seek for treatment. Mm-hmm. And then there were some other disciples of Jesus Christ, like Luke, who was a doctor or he was a physician. Mm-hmm. So again, the Bible also in a way encourages us or tells us that there were people who were physicians and were treating people who were sick. So I believe that when, um, particularly with mental health, if your faith um, tells you to pray, it is also important that you seek for professional help as well because it should be a balanced thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, Whilst you are praying, it is very important that you also seek for um, professional help as well because you might not know 
whatever it is that you are experiencing may be something that a professional will be able to help you whilst you also depend on God as well um, right. with regards to prayer. So right. I believe that it shouldn't just be um, the professional. That is, if you believe in prayers, it should be both the prayers and then the professional help as well and not just um, focus solely on the prayers and neglect that of the professional help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then what if the healing methods tend to be more indigenous in a sense that, let's say, indigenous uh, practice in the context of Africa might, mm-hmm. you know, you know, uh, include the use of herbs and whatnot, mm-hmm. of which many people criticize, but forgetting that even the Western medication is just, mm-hmm. you know, a, a civilized method mm-hmm. or it's a revised method of the traditional mm-hmm. herbs. This is just now it has passed through the labs and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Won't that open up more criticisms? Or I guess what I'm trying to say is to link the fact that in tying up men, you know, re, the Bible with mental health, it might also require an extension in terms of the healing processes that we don't only think about it also from just from the context of a Western perspective, mm-hmm. but also from an indigenous perspective. But what does this, this then mean about God when... Mm-hmm in the way we practice Christianity today, we've sort of closed up different avenues. We've mm. called different you know, practices as mm. demonic mm. when, um, I mean, certain contexts would never call them as demonic, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I get where you are coming from and I will not um, underplay that of the indigenous uh, way of, of healing. So I personally went, I have a client. Um, it is one of the things that I will always explore um, to find out what the person believes in. And if it is um, traditional um, beliefs the person subscribes to mm-hmm. and he or she feels that is where I can get treatment from. Um, yes, that is the person's belief. I won't force it down on the person's throat to go for um, the Christian way of of healing mm-hmm. and so yes um, it all depends on what the person believes in but i will always um, encourage having um, both ways that is a professional way as well as whatever you believe in and then um, yeah you will get better at the end of the day and after all it is the person getting well that is the important thing right yeah. right i think i should say that i'm liking the way medical health is actually going uh today Maybe should I say mental health? I'm not sure. Because I had a chat with Dr. Penny Kansime from Uganda, mm. um, and she mentioned the same thing to say part of her clients would, would, would make reference to the fact that um, they want to go to either a traditional healer or they want to go to their pastor to pray mm. for them. So they're no longer sort of standing on the ways of mm. clients to say, mm-hmm. no, do not mix those yeah. processes because, you know, you, they might delay your healing mm. process or whatever the case. So I'm, I'm, I'm basically liking that. But what a great way to start. The conversation is not mainly about <laughs> that. But I like, I like the fact that we had mm. to sort of touch base on that. Yeah. For the purpose of, our conversation today you you are a clinical psychologist yes. and trained as a behavioral scientist mm-hmm. so i would i'd like for us to sort of dive in and talk more about behaviors particularly mm-hmm. uh those that are captured among the youths and um 
if if you were to tell us as a behavioral psychologist, I'm not I'm not sure how the questions are going to swing, and then I'm pretty sure that you saw how we started. Yeah. You probably probably don't know what to expect on your side. But um, what would you say people should know at the end of this? What is it that you say people should benefit at the end of the episode in relation to your work and in relation to just understanding of behaviors and stuff? Okay, so. Um Yes, I think at the end of this show, people should um, probably understand why youth engage in the behaviors that they do, um, what are the underlying cause of these behaviors, and also um, explore or also understand um, what can be done to help them. Um, and I know when it comes to youth and behaviors, particularly health risk behaviors, there have been a lot of criticisms. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at the end of the show, I want people to understand why they engage in these health risk behaviors mm-hmm. and the whole supports they can offer to them to help them overcome these health risk behaviors. Yeah. Right, right. Just as we as we dive in, uh 2021, you you co-published a paper and you're you're the first author there, mm. which speaks about um uh multiple health risk behaviors among the youth in Australia. And we'll talk whether and and how all those, you know, behaviors relate to other contexts, even maybe much more, especially in uh, the context of Africa. Can you, can you briefly share with us about that? Like talk us briefly about the paper. What is it that you, you had observed about the Australian youth for you to feel like I need to confirm something through scientific evidence? Okay. So, um, yes, that paper was uh, a paper that was part of my PhD. Mm-hmm. And so um, why that paper um, and then the population, let me also add that the, the study was among vocational education students here in Australia. And we realized from the initial literature search that a lot has been done among university students, but very little among vocational education students and these are students who are at risk when it comes to um, engaging in health risk behaviors. It's made up of very young population, um, but then not so much emphasis has been placed on them. So when I did a quick literature search to find out what has been done in that population, I ended up finding only eight studies that um, looked at multiple health risk behaviors among vocational education studies. So that is very limited. Um, and these are also people or young adults who come from very um, poor socioeconomic backgrounds. And so they, um, that is also a risk factor in itself, coming from very poor socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. It's a risk factor for uh, why people engage in these health risk behaviors. And so I was interested in finding out why these health risk behaviors, it's very um, common, hot for, for first of all, hot, hot uh, the various health risk behaviors they engage in, and then also find out whether they engage in just one health risk behaviors at a time or whether they tend to engage in multiple health risk behaviors. And if they do, um, what are the various support services that um, will be useful to help them modify these health risk behaviors? So mainly the motivation for um, doing this was because we realized that it's a very vulnerable population made up of very young people who are studying to become um, tradies and all that. Mm-hmm. 
and very little has been done among university uh, in that population a lot has been done in the university settings and if we want to offer them intervention it is important that we understand why they engage in these health risk behaviors and what are the various dimensions when it comes to these health risk behaviors mm -hmm. so that we can design effective interventions and and offer these interventions or support services to them right yeah. but what is what is the reason around the differences as to whether one is in university and one is in a vocational education um, stream in a sense that I'm thinking these are people um, who are probably on the very same age range, range so, so to say. Um, does it matter whether one is in university and whether one is in vocational or, or the aspect that dictates to that is the issue of the economic background? Okay. So the economic background is one of the big things. So um, not to say that those who go to university are rich or are richer than those who go to vocational education yeah. schools. But then when you look at it across board, vocational education institutions are less um, expensive. And so people who... Um, do not come from well-to-do backgrounds or who do not have the economic uh, uh, means tend to prefer the vocational education um, institution as a pathway um, to like a tertiary institution. And so the economic is one of them. But then um, another dimension is that we do have a lot of people in the vocational education settings who are having families. And so they have to um, juggle work, working um, as um, part-time workers and then studying as well and then family and and all these things put together is very stressful mm -hmm. and so that is also another reason why they tend to engage in these health risk behaviors let me be quick to also say that it doesn't mean that university students don't work part-time mm -hmm. but then um, they also do work university students also work part-time and then they have to combine it with um, studying as well but then it's something for for vocational education settings the nature of the course requires that you also do work um, as a practical way of learning. Um, and so, so the emphasis is not just on the theory, but theory, yeah. you also have to, for example, if you are studying in the vocational education institution as a carpenter, you probably will have to just do maybe two days of school work. And then the rest of the three days is spent with um, someone who is already a carpenter and then you are <coughs> sorry, understanding the person. So, that is the, the dimension. And again, not a lot of university students are, um, have families, like mm -hmm. mostly, uh, most of them are single. Whereas when you go into the um, TAFE or the vocational education institutions, you realize that there are quite a lot of them who already have families and are, are studying. So that is one um, dimension when it comes to the university student versus um, the vocational education student. But then with regards to age, you realize that um, you may find probably the same um, young adults yeah. in both institutions, but there are other dimensions like what I've mentioned that yeah. um, distinguishes. Um, and you, you said earlier, you said earlier, uh, people from poor backgrounds do health risk behaviors, have higher health. I don't know if it's higher or what, but you should basically mention they do health risk behaviors. Uh, and I'm thinking, is it? <sighs> Do you think the risks that are taken by those from poor background are, are somewhat higher than those that are taken by someone from a rich background? In a sense that, and also where would you locate context here? Because mm -hmm. I think both are likely to, to, 
to be in risks and the risks could be different. Yeah. Uh, uh, theft is also part of a risk mm-hmm. behavior, I would That's think. Right. right. And 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 if someone engages in in uh, um, stealing, mm-hmm. let's say in the context of Africa or in the context of the US, mm-hmm. the person it stands a higher chance of getting killed mm-hmm. as opposed to I'm thinking in terms of Australia. And that is that kind of a thought comes also with the issues of, you know, ownership of guns and whatnot, you know, mm-hmm. in, in America, if someone steals and you've got a gun, you can just mm-hmm. shoot at the person or whatever. I'm not, and I'm not saying Americans just go be shooting people, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just trying to build a context yeah. here. Um, so at the same time, someone might say, yeah, but you know, rich kids, they, into substance abuse a lot, drugs, different kinds of drugs. And, you know, they are more, most likely to even engage in, you know, uh, um, sexual parties and whatnot compared to people from poor backgrounds. So, so basically this can be case uh, relative. It can be context-based and whatnot. But w- what do you think? Um, who would you say, as as you sort of peruse your literature and also in your writing, in your own research, really, who would you say, you know, practice greater, you know, degrees of uh, um, risk behavior? Who okay. engages in greater degrees? Yeah, so um, I would say it is relative. Like, I think you've already answered the question, yeah. but then <laughs> um, consistently, when you look at the, the, the literature, it's always um, suggests that low socioeconomic background or people who come from very poor um, economic backgrounds are more likely to engage in health risk behaviors. Everywhere or in a specific well, context? Well, consistently across, it may sometimes it sort of changes a bit. You'll find other literature saying the opposite, but across board, right. you look at the literature, it's always... There's something we call the social determinants of health. But does this that is is the reason for that really because literature has pointed us the kind of risks factors that rich people engage in, or and, and the fact that you know some of the behaviors for rich people one might not think of them to be a risk, but if they were to be done by a poor person, that might be considered a risk. Right. How do we draw you know the line around those? Yeah. So um, and I also like how you mentioned contest as well. Yeah. So. Um, for example, a risk, a health risk behavior, which may be uh, peculiar or uh, specific to people from socioeconomic, poor socioeconomic background is eating enough fruit and vegetables. So vegetables and fruit, for example, here in Australia is very expensive, whereas the junk foods or the, not, the unhealthy ones are less um, expensive. And so someone who comes from a background which is not um, good in terms of economic or finance may not be able to afford the healthy meals, which is the vegetables or the fruit, and may rather you know go in for the less healthy uh, food. So that is one dimension to it. Mm-hmm. And then there is also what you mentioned, like the people from rich backgrounds, there are certain things that they can do. For example, they may have money to afford um, drugs or other substances. Whereas someone from a poor socioeconomic background may not be able to afford and so will not probably engage in these health risk behaviors. But then it's it's always about the financial um, stress or the distress that um, is associated with these health risk behaviors. And so, um, yes, they don't have the money. That in itself puts a lot of stress on them. Mm-hmm. And then 
as a way of coping, they may tend to engage in certain health risk behaviors that will not be appropriate. And so just before this um, interview, I saw a news item where um, in Nigeria, I think about 35 teenagers were rescued and they were rescued from um, a place where what they go to do is that they get pregnant, they deliver, and then they sell their babies. And straight away, when I saw it, wow. what came into mind was that if, assuming they had money, I'm sure they were doing that or they are doing that because they want money. And mm -hmm. so if they had money, I don't think that they will go in for that. So teenagers, you know, going to get pregnant is a risk behavior on its own. And, and that is influenced by the fact that they are coming from very poor backgrounds and they need money to do whatever they want to do. And so they had to go and engage in that to um, to survive, if I'll put it that way. So, yes, I, I agree with you. It's, it depends on what kind of behavior it is and where the person is coming from. So the rich will have money and, you know, be able to afford drugs or other substances, whereas the poor will, for example, may not be able to afford, for example, a healthy meal because he or she can't afford that. If it is engaging in physical activity, um, we, again, going to the gym is something that is very expensive. Yeah. And so the rich can easily afford it. And so we'll go to the gym to exercise for several days in the week. Whereas the, the, someone who um, is not well-to-do, the little money he or she has will not even consider going to the gym in the first place. Who want to rather mm -hmm. invest it into something else. So there are different dimensions to it. Yeah. It depends on the kind of health risk behaviors. It also depends on, on the contest as well. So what may be um, a health risk behavior as a result of poor socioeconomic background in Africa may not be the same as it is in Australia. But generally, the literature always seems to suggest that people with um, poor socioeconomic or people who come from those poor socioeconomic backgrounds tend to engage in health risk behaviors. Right, yeah. right. I'm, I'm, I was curious um, to engage more about the vegetable intake mm -hmm. because that's, this is one of the things that came out from your findings, mm -hmm. right? Especially yeah. the paper that you, you, you published last year. And I'm thinking about maybe first question on that uh, I'm, I'm trying to think so that i don't bombard you sometimes first question on that how in the paper do you measure adequate vegetable intake okay. and i'm thinking about that also in the context where australian food mm -hmm. um i mean australia where we are there's a lot of asian people and mm -hmm. asian food is very popular mm -hmm. and asian food has got a lot of vegetables mm -hmm. Uh, like you eat chicken fried rice or, you know, special fried rice, you always find those. Um, you'll always find vegetables. So how did you measure an adequate intake? Because in the very same paper, you speak about, you know, higher consumption of alcohol and you sort of used an Australian way to measure what high means. How, how do you measure what inadequate is in the context of vegetables and where do you locate that in the context of um, somebody who might be eating uh, Chinese food every day and, and also the way in which the vegetables are prepared also mm -hmm. uh, does it matter because you know uh, people who are health you know uh, too much health conscious they'll mm -hmm. tell you about how something shouldn't be like this if it's no longer crunchy you've already killed the nutrition mm -hmm. and stuff like that in that yeah so um, how I measured um, 
adequate vegetable consumption and fruit consumption is in Australia there is a health guidelines um, that you know informs how much food you should be eating and then what you should even be eating so with vegetable consumption it is recommended that you have five steps of vegetables every day and then two steps of fruits every day for you to to say that you are meeting the recommended guidelines for vegetable and then fruit and that in itself is very high like meeting five steps of vegetables a day will suggest that the whole day you probably will have to eat only vegetables or everything that you eat should include vegetables if you want to meet the guidelines so the challenge has always been with meeting the guidelines it's not like people are not eating vegetables they are eating vegetables but then it seems the um, the bar or the standard is really high and people are not able to meet um, when it comes to vegetables for example because that is five steps um the who recommends um eating our 400 grams of vegetables and fruits every day which is also very high like the food you eat every day may not necessarily have <coughs> vegetables in it so that has always been a challenge like having people to meet it because it seems the standard is very high <laughs> but again that is hot um is good for our health and so that has always accounted for why we do have a lot of people not meeting the guidelines for vegetables for example for fruit to serves it depends on what you like and then what you eat, you may just get a banana as well as an apple. And then you've met your two serves um, for fruit. But then for vegetables, like I said, if you want to really go by that street guideline, it means everything you eat during the day should have vegetables in it, which is seem not to be um, realistic. And so the question I posed to the students to find out whether they were meeting the guidelines for vegetables and fruit was to ask them whether they how much um, um vegetables they eat in a day and so anyone who mentioned i eat less than five steps of vegetables a day was not meeting the guideline whereas um, um if someone is eating four at least the person is doing well but because it is five you are out it not sort of knocks you out and then um vegetable uh, fruit was how much steps of fruit you are eating in a day so if anyone um indicates i eat two steps of veg uh, fruit in a day the person is doing well and there are some people who don't just like fruit at all there are also people who don't like um vegetables as well and so it means that they are also not going to meet um the recommended guidelines now there's also another like i, I was telling you earlier there's another um paper which i'm currently working on where i was um, I, I, I qualitatively um explored why they tend to engage in these health risk behaviors and when it comes to something like vegetables and fruit, one of the reasons or one of the common themes was that the taste, like a lot of people were talking about the fact that they don't like the taste of vegetables and from childhood they never liked it. And so when they were growing up, they never um, liked it. So taste is also one of them. Um, everyone prefers something that is, you know, sweet. very yummy, sweet. Yeah. Whereas vegetables, I mean, it's just, if you don't add it to something like maybe chicken or some other thing to make it very yummy and enjoyable, just yeah. eating it in its raw state, it's not something that a lot of people like. So it's always about the standard which is being had. And a lot of um, experts have always said, should we consider bringing down the standard so that people are able to to meet it? 
or it is okay as it is now and also there are other dimensions like the fact that it is expensive to eat vegetables or to buy vegetables it is expensive to buy fruit whereas the junk foods are less expensive and so if i have two dollar i'm sure i can get something to eat whereas when you get um two dollar and you, you go to the shop you can't even probably purchase tomatoes uh -huh. because it is very expensive so the price <coughs> the price is one of them the fact that the standard is very high and then people also not interested because of the taste as well. Yeah. yeah, but also I think the fact that some of them, they, they were forced when they were still young. So you can grow resentment yeah. over something if, you, right. if you're constantly forced to take it and you don't want it. That's when you grow right. up, you feel like, I don't, yeah. I don't want this thing anymore, right. you know. Um, I, have, I have a bit of a challenge sort of comprehending the idea of changing the standards. Mm -hmm. Right. And and another thing that I wanted to make a comment on is the fact that um, also the preparation of it, probably it's one of the things people don't like or people in general might be stressed. Because one of the things that people do is that when people are in a bad shape psychologically, they make they tend to make a lot of bad decisions. You know, if you're not feeling well, you wouldn't feel the need of eating healthy, right. you know, and or if you're tired, people are forever busy. Sometimes you, it's busy just even playing games. It's not like you're doing something physical, but your body keeps telling you you're tired. Therefore, That's you won't right. have the need to feel like, let me just cook something healthy. So it seems like even preparing meal in mm -hmm. itself has become such a huge task that yeah. people feel like this is time, you know, this is time consumption. This mm -hmm. this is tedious. Let me just grab something quickly. And That's that quick right. thing becomes a junk thing, mm -hmm. isn't it? That's true. So it's, it's again, it's one of the reasons like consistently when you look at um, studies that have looked at why people were engaged in these health risk behaviors, um, time has always been a factor, particularly with um, young adults who are studying in the university or mm. vocational education institutions. Time is a very important thing. You need to do assignments. You need to go for lectures. And if you have part-time work as well, you need to you know, go to work and all that. And you come back feeling very tired. On your way, you may want to just you know, pass by KFC or McDonald's or one yeah. of these fast foods and yeah. then just get something. And they may not really be healthy for, for you. So time has been um, a factor and and also with regards to preparing it as well like it may take time and so whereas it is very easy to just walk into a fast food um yeah and grab something, uh, and then grab something very yeah. quick and you know you can even eat it whilst working or doing whatever you are doing so time and then also how to prepare it uh, yeah, so yes here's, here's the thing for me about setting up the standard that I feel like it's missing. And it's one of the things that I can say I, problemat I would problematize maybe your study and a lot of these other studies for not being clear on. Um, vegetables, we grow up learning that organic is different to non-organic. Organic. I don't know how would you, what do, what would you call non-organic? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> Let's call it non-organic yeah. at this moment. Maybe genetically modified or something. Like something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, so you, you find that it's different in terms of nutrition mm -hmm. and whatnot. Right. Mm -hmm. And therefore to sort of calculate the fact that I ate one which is organic, somebody eats another one which is inorganic, you may find that the intake of nutrition is very different. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in the setting of the standards as to how does it come to the setting of the standard? Or maybe let's not 
delve a lot onto those who theorize that, but I want to know from your own context as to how did you think of those things in terms of your uh, description of, you know, intake adequate or non-adequate adequate intake or whatnot. And, and I'm asking this question because I was listening to said guru just a couple of days ago, said guru. Uh, now, I don't know if you know said guru. He's an Indian, he's an Indian, um, Elder, elder, and he's 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 very wise. I think you should just research him. Um, and he had a conversation with Joe Rogan, and one of the things that he said, because he also advocates for saving the soil, mm-hmm. you know, because apparently the nutrition even in the soil they are thinning out and whatnot. There are all issues around environmental or climate, mm-hmm. you know, change and whatnot. So, meaning even the nutrition of organic. Mm-hmm. Uh, 10 years ago would be different to organic today in terms of because of the impact that, you know, uh, um, climate change has on soil or whatever, how we sort of look after our soil and stuff like that. So he actually even spoke about the fact that, you know, these days um, people would say, if you want vitamin C, you know, you see these, now they make tablets, you know, have vitamin Cs instead of having, you know, oranges. Mm. But you find that one, just one tablet of vitamin C today would actually not just require you to have one orange. You might have mm-hmm. to eat about five oranges. Mm-hmm. Do you see now how that is growing? Yeah. Now that begins to dictate mm-hmm. towards what is the standard that we've put in to say this is adequate or this is mm-hmm. inadequate. How do you, how did you think about those realities and terminologies and, and as to whether indeed are you getting what really should be got mm-hmm. or you're just working on a certain frame? Okay, so yes, I was working on a certain frame. So I wasn't interested in finding out whether they were consuming organic foods or non-organic foods. Yeah. Um, I was just interested in how much they are consuming in a day and if that is adequate enough to help them um, live healthy lives. Um, but the th- here's the thing. You, you may not be interested in whether they're eating organic or mm-hmm. not organic. The point goes back to, are you getting enough nutrition? Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you healthy? Yeah. But are we able to measure that? Because I was just bringing the idea of organic mm-hmm. and non-organic to sort of set the, the context to say, you know, the quantity or the quality of nutrition mm-hmm. changes now. That's right. So, yes, we are able to measure the quality as well. But then for my... Um, study because one time and then also uh, you need money to you right. know measure the quality of what they are eating as well yeah. and so I wasn't interested but there are so many other um, researchers who are also not just interested in a quantity but then the quality of what people are, are consuming so I, I, I honestly agree with you we shouldn't just probably be focusing on the quantity but also be focusing on the quality as well because you may be eating a lot of the wrong things yeah and that in, in itself is very um, detrimental to your health if you are just eating a lot of the wrong things. So it should not just be the quantity, but then the quality as well. Right. It's very right. important. And, and yeah. I mean, also, when you when you have a conversation with a few dietitians, mm-hmm. they tend to be specific. And I know, I know that now I'm kind of like <laughs> making your work sound like I'm making your work more it's difficult. Right. Yeah. But when you have a conversation with dietitians, mm-hmm. they'll tell you also that based on your blood type and mm-hmm. what it's not really each and every fruit that yeah. is really necessary That's for your right. body. Yeah. You know, so all of that, how does it affect then research in terms of, you know, um, like those dynamics? Yeah. Do we ever so, think about how they affect? Yes, they are, so for, for me, because I'm not um, 
dietitian, dietitian or yeah. nutritionist. I don't really focus on those other things, the details. Yeah. So I'm just interested in what, how much are they eating, and is that enough with regards to what the guideline is saying? But for people who are like clinical nutritionists or dietitians, right. they I will see. probably go more into um, details to find out what specifically are you eating with regards to quality, mm -hmm. um, and then how that is impacting on on your health. So even though we are saying fruit is good there are certain foods that continuous continuously eating them can be detrimental to your health because yeah. of the um the sugar content in them and so someone who has diabetes um may those foods may not be good for you mm -hmm. um even though it is good to eat fruit but then too much consumption of it because of the high sugar levels in them may be detrimental right. to the health so yeah. Um, those are things that other people are also um, interested in, but for mine... But you do draw to the conclusion, therefore, that they are putting themselves in a risk because there isn't high intake. I'm interested in that. Well, so Why then not put this as perhaps a limitation of okay. the study to say this is what... Yes, here we've... This is where we've arrived, mm -hmm. but here are the blind spots also. Okay. We may not be interested in them, but we feel like they're important and this is how they, mm. they shape the scope of the entire paper. Well, so, um, yes, I agree with you. It should be a limitation, but then, um, again, for for me, as a, a researcher at that level, my focus was just on how much of it, this is what the recommended guidelines say. And these guidelines were also, you know, designed or were prepared based on, like, research, like how much of food should right. we eat in a yeah. day how much of vegetables should we eat in a day if we want to stay healthy? Mm -hmm. um, and then it's there are some that go further to say this is what you should be eating, even though you should be eating five cells. It's not just any five cells of vegetables, but based on your age, based right. on your body compositions yeah. and so many other um, biological factors, you should be eating these specific ones if you want to stay healthy. Um, so, yes, I agree with you. It should be a limitation of, of the paper. And if um, there were there, there was money, enough money and also time, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it would be something that I will be exploring to find right. out how much. And then also not just how much, but then also the quality as well of what they are eating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, let's let's jump onto the other risks because mm. it's not just vegetable. We yeah. just spent a lot of time <laughs> on vegetable. Perhaps you listeners have to be taking your vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> are you good? You need water. Are you good? Yeah. So if we can if we can jump onto the other risks, um, what other <coughs> risks? Uh, comes out after you know next to not having enough perhaps perhaps let me just give you a few minutes so that you can just walk us through briefly what is it that you you find and what seems to be the, the reason for that and if you know if i interject then i'll interject just just okay. maybe very briefly because you came up with three clusters mm -hmm. that basically no, came, four, four clusters, clusters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you want to talk us through maybe okay so um for that particular paper i was interested in finding out whether um vocational education students health risk behavior cluster so when i say cluster what i mean is people don't just engage in one health risk behaviors um they tend to engage yeah. in multiple yeah and so we're, we're interested in finding out so um i explored five health risk behaviors so um smoking of tobacco inadequate vegetable consumption um inadequate veg uh, food consumption alcohol consumption 
um, physical inactivity. Mm-hmm. And so these were the five health risk behaviors that I was interested in. And so we were interested on our, our, I was interested in finding out which of these health risk behaviors co-occur or go together. So mm-hmm. if someone um, is engaging in health risk behaviors, would a person drink alcohol and smoke at the same time and not engage in enough physical activity? So that was the whole idea of that paper. I wanted to find out, yes, people engage in two or more health risk behaviors, but then which of these health risk behaviors tend to co-occur or um, co-exist? And so um, I found um, that there were four clusters in this um, population. Um, We found out that, so apart from the health risk behaviors, I also was interested in whether their mental health also played a role or tend to um, cluster with these health risk behaviors. So we found out that, um, yes, there are high prevalence of health risk behaviors among the vocational education students um, and not just do they engage in one health risk behaviors, but they, they tend to engage in multiple. And also these health risk behaviors co-occur or cluster with their mental health. So people who report um, high rate of depression and anxiety tend to engage in these health risk behaviors. And the relationship is bi-directional. When I say bi-directional, what I mean is that um, people who experience mental health um, challenges may engage in these health risk behaviors as a way of coping. Mm-hmm. And also sometimes the health risk behaviors is a risk factor for engaging in this health risk behavior. So it's either right. way. That is what I mean by bi-directional. Um, and so um, earlier on, you talked about when someone is tired or experiencing mental health problem, they tend to engage in, and there's something we call comfort food. So someone who is experiencing depression may, you know, eat a lot of chocolate because that is hot calms him or her down right and so chocolate we know again it's good it has it's very good aspect but too much consumption of it is also putting you at risk in terms of your health yeah and so that is how um mental health plays a role when it comes to engaging in health risk behaviors or sometimes engaging in these health risk behaviors then leads to you having mental problems so for example drinking too much alcohol yeah or smoking tobacco or some other um, substance may, you know, put the individual at risk of um, having mental health um, challenges. So that was what I was interested in finding out, whether these healthy behaviors coexist, Mm -hmm. and if they coexist, which of them tend to uh, coexist. So an interesting finding from that research was that um, smoking and drinking of alcohol, smoking tobacco and drinking of alcohol tend to coexist, um, as well as um, food, inadequate food consumption or poor nutrition and physical inactivity tend to yeah. um, coexist. And um, an explanation to that is alcohol and um, smoking tend to you know, go together um, because they are um, both trying to help the individual calm down for people smoke when they are stressed, people drink alcohol when they are stressed. So it explains why those two behaviors tend to go together and then physical inactivity and then um, inadequate fruits and vegetable consumption also tend to go together because people engage in these health risk behaviors um, as a way of, for example, maybe staying and if someone is exercising, he or she, let me come from this point. So someone who wants to lose weight will exercise more and also, you know, look at what he or she is eating. Mm -hmm. And so that explains why these two behaviors tend to 
Kuoke. And there are also another group of people who just engage in all these health risk behaviors. They smoke, they drink alcohol at an excessive level, they are not exercising enough, and then also not eating enough fruit and vegetables. So there's that um, group of students who tend to engage in these health risk behaviors. But if you are looking at them two by two, you find out that alcohol and smoking tend to go together mm -hmm. and then fruit and vegetable also tend to go together. Yeah. I guess I, I, we stayed a lot on vegetable because mm. I think vegetables, veg, low vegetable was very much prevalent in yeah. all the four clusters and very, very low. That's right. And, and I was I was somewhat uh, interested to hear more about that and as to whether is there, is there really no unfair judgment um, in that sense. I mean, okay, if you were to list what, what are the main problems uh, that causes young people to engage in this financial issues? You've mentioned yeah. that. What what other other things come up? Because I was interested in getting that much more from you. What's your impression? Yeah. Because as I said, it feels like the paper just alludes a little bit. Mm -hmm. So now I want us to think also about what those problems are, mm -hmm. what what the reasons are towards interventions. You know, mm -hmm. uh, positive interventions. Mm -hmm. How does the government play its role there? Because I can see already it's clear that uh, most of the things you've mentioned it. They, 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 they have a strong route towards depression. Mm -hmm. And we can say, but Australia is doing great in terms of, you know, putting out their, you know, uh, awareness, mental health awareness and accessibility towards uh, psychologists and whatnot. Mm -hmm. What would then other interventions be? But first, maybe let's just list um, what, what other reasons that drive these young people okay. into. Yeah, so yeah. Um, financial difficulties is one of them, as we've mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the factor of peer influence. So um, particularly in Australia, and I think it is something that, um, yeah, probably cuts across where we have what we call the social drinking mm -hmm. or social smoking. So um, you belong to a cluster of friends or a group of friends and everyone seems to drink or smoke and you are likely to find yourself um, drinking as well. That is if you... Um, are not able to control yourself if it is something you don't want to do but you may end up finding yourself doing because the, the cohorts or the friends you belong to do um, the same thing so peer influence is one mm -hmm. and also a upbringing as well so when um, children grow up in homes where mother father drink and smoke are not eating enough fruit Family and vegetables yes yeah. are not exercising it is not something that is part of the family culture the tendency is that um, the child may also grow up and not, you know, exercising now because it's something he or she didn't grow up to to experience and also drinking or smoking because he or she grew up seeing parents yeah. smoking may end up smoking. So family upbringing is, is one of them. And also the fact that people also say it's a norm, like, you know, I'm sure you are aware that in Australia, like um, drinking is a very, it's a, it's a, it's cultural, a cultural thing. Yeah. yeah. And I remember when I was um, doing this um, study, when I was gathering my data, um, one of the teachers um, at one of the campuses I visited um, mentioned that a student approached him and said, look, I can't find a job. And he told him to go to the pub. That is where you find the jobs. Wow. And, and his reason was that that is where you find the big guys in the industry. Like Friday, oh. they will go to the, the pub, you know, have a drink, talk about their weekend other things and so when you go to the pub and you also get a drink you get to meet them and then interact so for example if that student is not a type that likes to drink may end up drinking um yeah, yeah getting into into drinking alcohol at an excessive level so that is 
another um, dimension um, to it. And then again, mental health is a very big thing. Um, yes, you've mentioned in Australia, they are seem to be doing very well, um, promoting mental health and, you know, accessibility to psychologists. But it is really hard getting psychologists, even though um, they are available in Australia. Mm-hmm. To get access to one can be sometimes um, very tough. Why? Why and is then, that the case? Well, I think it's much to do with um, the numbers of psychologists. Okay, yes, compared to other juries, uh, other countries or continents where, for example, Ghana, we have very limited um, psychologists and even psychiatrists compared to Australia. But again, when you look at um, the population and then the need, okay, it is it is something that is still not enough, okay? And that is one of the reasons. So for you to see a psychologist, sometimes it can take you like months for you to book. I'm sure you are aware like booking yeah. to see a doctor here in Australia oh, can be very word. hectic. Yeah. And it's the same thing seeing a psychologist because they do not want to take on a lot of people at the same time. And so it can be really hard. And so people do have issues, but then getting in to speak to someone can be very challenging. Mm-hmm. And so whilst they are waiting to see a professional, they may, you know, be engaging in other things just as a way of coping, which may not really be right. um, be healthy. So mental health is it's one of them. And for young adults um, in school, bullying can also be a factor. Poor academic performance can also be a factor. So they consistently are being bullied in school. They are not able to... Is in vocational well, stream? It, it, it depends on, on what we are... From not necessarily physical bullying, but for example, bullying in terms of emotional, psychological bullying... When um, people are bullied emotionally, people are laughed at or, uh-huh. you know, so many other things are done to them to feel bad emotionally. They may not really be able to speak to someone. Uh-huh. And as a way of coping, they may, you know, engage in um, health risk behaviors as a, as, uh, um, to cope with it. So, yes, not necessarily physical bullying, but other ways of yeah. uh, bullying may be yeah. um, a factor as well. Poor academic performance. A young adult is experiencing academic problems, may not be able to talk to a professional and sees him or herself as a failure. And the next thing is, let me maybe get um, alcohol or smoke as a way of of getting relief from Mm -hmm. what I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. Or the academic problems may have a toll on his mental health. And again, the mental health will lead to engaging in health risk um, behavior. So, there are quite a lot of um, factors that account for for these health risk behaviors, um, homelessness, um, refugee experiences. All these are very harsh conditions that people go through, and when they are not able to cope very well, it tends to um, affect them, and they engage in health risk behaviors. And also, sometimes the help, the support services are available, but they are not appropriate for that particular um, age group. So another dimension to my <coughs> study was that we were interested in finding out whether <coughs> they would sign up to use online and telephone support services to help them modify these health risk behaviors. And we realized that most of them prefer to use the online services and not the telephone support services. Why? Because these are very young adults and they will not want to be bothered by someone calling them on phone. Um, how much vegetables have you eaten today? <laughs> how can I help you? They rather prefer to, you know, have a support services, which is on their phone, like an app or something that they can just, you know, use whenever they feel they want to 
um, using sort of someone calling them on phone right, and, right. and disturbing them. So the support services may be available, but if they are not designed with the young population in mind, um, they may not want to use them. Okay. So again, it is important that um, these support services are designed to um, meet the needs of these young ones, something that they will be interested in using, and then they can um, use them. But does oh, I see what you mean. So, so basically, when you say the interventions, particularly the creation of, you know, point of contact, it should be designed in a way that it has young people in mind. That's right. And and their preferred ways of interacting with the government or yeah. health practitioners yeah. and whatnot. Do you think? Do you think that is that can be helpful? Yes, it's something that young yeah. people might have that preference, but as an expert, is that is that? So if I get, can I repeat that question again? Um, so you're saying, probably also I'm thinking of what you just said mm-hmm. now as one of the interventions that you say the government can do whenever they, they, they think of how to engage with young mm-hmm. people. They should not think of it in the old just in the olden ways, mm-hmm. but they should also think in a way that young people today operate, in the mm-hmm. way that young people today function. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm think so my question is, yes, this is what young people are proposing also mm-hmm. that they would prefer talking to an app than somebody mm-hmm. calling them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm asking that as an expert also mm-hmm. from your side, do you think this can bring in great solutions? What could be, uh, perhaps just speak more about that. Could this bring great solutions or there could be even uh, downsides of it and what are the chances mm-hmm. of the downsides superseding the the actual solutions? Yeah. So, um, yes, even though I mentioned that they prefer, a lot of them will prefer the app. Again, it's not everyone who want to engage um, with the app. Like there are a lot of young people who are not, um, you know, phone um, service or whatever, they may yeah. rather prefer to talk to people. So I will probably recommend um, a multi-modal uh, right. interventions. Yeah. So a, b- a bit of the online, telephone, face-to-face, and other ways that you know people can engage you. So there were some that <coughs> mentioned that they would rather prefer face-to-face because that would make them more accountable versus the online, which you are just um, sitting somewhere and just engaging with an app or something, you may not be accountable to it. So I, I would probably recommend a multimodal. So mm-hmm. when we have a multimodal um, interventions available, people will just choose what they want to to use, like what is more convenient for them to use, and then they will um, get to use that. Yeah. Okay. So what other interventions can be brought in? Okay, number one, more access. So when we speak about the multimodal, is it is it is it is it the psychological help or it's also for other things? So the multimodal includes everything, psychological um help, um it could be counseling, um it could be group support, um it could be the app, it could be a telephone, you know, website, um even developing interventions where the family is included in it because if the problem is coming from the family you need to target it from that source as well if you are just focusing on the individual you may end up not um, achieving anything so when i say multimodal it it includes everything yeah it includes everything 
Right. Uh, what other interventions would you suggest? Well, for young adults, I think given that we live in a very technological world, um, a lot of them, like I mentioned, will prefer to use the online, um, engaging with um, an online intervention. <clears throat> but then there's also, um, how currently what we, we, we have now is the virtual reality, where, um, for example, using games and um, other virtual platforms to help people to engage in health risk behaviors. That is also another uh, paper that we are currently working on. We are um, finding out what studies have looked at virtual reality and then how that impacts on their uh, people's health risk behaviors. And so I think virtual reality can be something that can be considered as well. So anything that will basically engage the young adults when it comes to um, them modifying their health risk behaviors. And I will always be interested in finding out what will be useful for them. Like mm -hmm. you don't... Um, impose it on them because right, yeah. imposing it on them will it's like you're likely to get it rejected yeah so even before the interventions are developed or before for me as a psychologist if you come and you want to see me um and you want to change your health behavior and i want to find out what do you think will will be more suitable for you mm -hmm. do you think um talking to you face to face will be more appropriate or um, recommending an app that will be more appropriate it is important that these things are explored and then you give to the person what he or she uh, will feel more comfortable with. Right. Yeah? Three minutes. Let's see if we, if we can squeeze mm -hmm. three questions, meaning okay. you've got about a, a minute to sort of cut it mm -hmm. down. I'm just looking at the count, yeah. counting timer then. Uh, number one, then when you look at your findings and compare them to findings from other literature on university settings, is the is the differences much more big or the similarities or it's actually the same? Okay, so I think with vocational education students, it's it's a big problem. It's very big compared to university students, and they need a lot of attention. Yeah. Okay. Two, um, in relation to your work now, when you look at your work, part of the things that are kind of like so missing was literature from the global south mm -hmm. you know taking place is there any reason why literature from the global south is missing so the reason is because not much has been done so as before i did this particular um study i did um, a, a quick review and then all the eight studies that were included in that review were all coming from the developed countries very nothing from the um the developing countries so it's best because there are no literature and so um currently um you know working in in that contest as well so that we can understand why those problems exist and then what we can do to help yeah but you you're saying not much is done not much is done does not mean there's nothing done at all well yes not much is done so what i was interested in so my area of research is multiple health risk behaviors so when you look at single like people who explore individual behaviors, you will find quite a lot of them. But when it comes to multiple health risk behaviors, which I am interested in, not not much has been done. Or yes, you'll probably find one or two, which is still not enough. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, one last thing. Um, let's go back to the beginning. Do you think <laughs> we have achieved 
the objective you've given us in the beginning of the episode? Yes, so I think I've um, talked extensively on why I did that study yeah. and then talked also on why people tend to engage in these health risk behaviors. I mentioned financial distress as one of them, mm-hmm. peer influence as another, um, and then the fact that people um, come from very poor socioeconomic backgrounds also, which is quite related to their um, finance as well being um, a factor. Um, and also the upbringing, the norms um, in, in the society as well being a factor. So yeah, I think we've achieved the we end. Yeah. Actually, we did. I was just yeah. playing with you. <laughs> and thank you so much for your time, for your expertise. Oh, I mean, there's a lot of things we can talk about, isn't yeah. it? Um, but uh, eventually, every conversation should stop somewhere That's and then we can right. pick up from elsewhere. Yeah. Looking forward, though, to having a chat with you when now you found the qualitative work yes. so that we can go back to rethink more to say the interventions that you sort of propose in this episode. Are they still feasible when, when we look at what we find on a qualitative extent? Yeah. But uh, thank you so much, Dr. Atoki. We really appreciate you coming to the Visions and Tones podcast. Visions and Tones, as always, thank you so much for choosing us we appreciate you and as always we'll say it go ye and be best human beings go ye and be the best versions of yourselves and we are out <laughs>